also think it's it matters that Boaz knows Ruth. That Boaz paid attention to her and spent time with her and seemingly has has seen the good in her. I mean, I think it helps Boaz know that I'm going to, re- if you aren't redeeming this, I'm doing it. Yeah, I think that ties in these first chapters so well. And like, especially the conversation we had around chapter two of Boaz was the kind of landowner that went out onto the land to meet the people who were gleaning. Through that proximity, he developed a relationship with Ruth. Through that relationship with Ruth, he saw her as more than that label or title of Moabite. And he saw that he wanted to do something to protect her and see her. And there's a way, and I I don't know, I tend to, I really like Boaz, so I probably give him more credit than he deserves at certain points. But I even see him using that, like she's a Moabite, as a way to test, like I think he really cares for Ruth and he wants to make sure Ruth is well cared for. And so if you are going to judge her for being a Moabite, I'm going to make that real clear right now that she is. And if you can't see past that I can see past that or I don't know if see past is even the right language but like if that stops you from marrying her then I don't want you to marry her because I I I can see who she is I can see that she's that woman of valor that I named her as in chapter three and you might you probably can't and he might be kind of playing his cards to try to make sure that he's the one Hello and welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Stephen Hagen, and this is part 11 of our series on the book of Ruth. And we are in the midst of a conversation on chapter 4. We only have one more episode to go to finish out the 12-part series on the book of Ruth. And so we appreciate you being on this journey with us. If you have not yet become a patron of this podcast, you can do so by going to Patreon. Dot com search searching the sacred and when you become a patron for a dollar or more a month you will get the discussion guides that go with each and every episode of this series in the end there will be 12 discussion guides and we would love to have you utilize those for conversation with friends and uh, people in your in your sphere of influence and carry on the conversation that is started here so thanks for joining us and now let's dive back into the conversation. I do want to throw one more piece in to that uh, conversation um, that I found interesting. This was a note in a, in a study Bible I have. Um, it is called the Jewish study Bible, second edition. Um, but I would not have caught this. Um, so it says about the situation that Boaz implies that the acquisition of Ruth as a wife is necessarily tied to the redemption of the land. However, according to Torah law, Leverite marriage pertains only to the brother of a dead husband and not to other kinsmen. Meaning if, if Boaz or this other guy were a Limelech's brother, then they would need to marry Naomi. Or if if there had been a third child to Naomi and Elimelech, that brother would have to marry Ruth, but that that's the only marriage that is bound by law. For this reason, neither Boaz nor this other kinsman are legally bound to marry Ruth. 
nor is that necessary for the redemption of the land. Nevertheless, within this story, that link is articulated by Ruth on the threshing floor. And after she says it is accepted as the fundamental premise by the other characters in the narrative. Meaning like, what if Ruth is actually sort of pushing in to add to the law and Boaz accepts it and Boaz advocates for her reading of the law, which hadn't yet existed at this point. And does that affect how we're hearing what's happening at the city gates? If this interpretation of the law is actually coming from Ruth for the first time. I mean, that sure fits more with like the agency that we've been talking about these women having that it's less about just the room full of men sitting around deciding what to do with these women and more. Yeah. More a whole new way of being in the world potentially coming from the agency of these bold women of Hased. Makes me wonder about how often I feel like I can expand an interpretation of something I've been told is law in a very particular way. And um, how Jesus seems to do that, you know, Jesus in the Beatitudes will say, like, you've heard it said, but I say, and Jesus often sort of expands how people have understood the law to be. And that Ruth is the one doing that in this book, that she's expanding how people have interpreted these laws before and saying, this applies to me. Well, I think we like to do that. It's that thing of, um, we like to think that the laws have all the details in them and they've explained everything and it's very clear cut. This is right. This is wrong. And this is kind of pointing us towards um, thinking about laws as a way of setting like minimum standard. Like here's the, here's the base. But from here, we're going to, we're just going to keep expanding the thought that's, that's like whatever the law is, whatever that thing is like the kinsman redeemer was meant to be like the base standard to make sure people are cared for but man let's extend that let's just make sure let, like let's just keep not just cared for like let's make it expansive let's make it something that's actually doing this work of like restoring and making things better than they were so it feels like it if we think about <laughs> laws just as like yes no's we can get stuck in like all the details of like well who's I mean, I could literally see this being a conversation in a room of like, well, who's got to do it? Who's doing what? Well, you don't have to. And let's have a, it could be all that. And it could also be like, well, yeah, that's the minimum. But like, man, I'm going to stand up and do a, just do the thing because it makes sense to me. I can mm-hmm. like make the leap. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the two different back to the parable conversation of, of this certain man kind of language of the different ways that people would approach Jesus with questions that like, there's one man that approached Jesus and said, Hey, what are, what are the most important laws? And that guy was a scribe and G- and seemed to ans- ask the question in a genuine way. And Jesus answered the question. It was like, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself. And that guy was like, Ooh, that's hard. But I agree. And they had a whole conversation about it. It was deep and beautiful. Another, another, uh, that was once in Mark, I think 13. Um, and then Luke 10, another guy comes along and says, 
and asked Jesus, they have the same conversation about what's the most important laws. This time it's the lawyer who's like, well, it's these two. I can prove to you that I'm right. But then he tests Jesus and says, but who's my neighbor? And then that parable comes into play where Jesus says, your neighbor is not who you thought it was. This is way more expansive than you thought it was. You were trying, you're trying to come into this law of love your neighbor as yourself by defining who neighbor is in narrow care, narrow terminology. I'm saying use that just the way Lisa said it. Um, use that as a baseline and say, who can my neighbor be? Instead of who who isn't my neighbor, say, what if I treated everybody as my neighbor? What if my enemies were my neighbor? How can I expand that law from the baseline into how I live my life as a life of love? Well, I think it gets at the this like kind of cultural captivity of like law for us is as like, like, like we've been saying, like the definitive right and wrong, and it's clear and it's really, you know, and we just don't think about it again, as opposed to like trajectory. I mean, like, I mean, you, you, we talk about this all the time. Like every Hebrew word comes down to a verb. It's all about movement. It's all about flow. It's all about directionality. And, and so like, I like to recognize that like the law is not simply about black and white, like murder's wrong, you know, like don't kill, um, you know, don't lie. But instead it's like, it's relationality. Because it's, are you flowing in a way that relationally brings about communal shalom and wholeness? Or are you actively going against that? Now, you could say one's right, one's wrong. Sure. But I could also say one produces flourishing and one produces destruction. And that's a flow. That's a movement. Are we moving towards a less equitable, unhealthy community? Or are we flowing towards one where all are cared for. And so we could say, yeah, there's a specific law here and Ruth is expanding on it and she's changing it and she's breaking the law by adding to it or doing, you know, or we could just say, you know what? She's looking at this as a, as a law that is meant to flow towards the flourishing of this, of, of her humanity and her, you know, her, her dead husband's humanity and her mother-in-law's humanity. And actually the better interpretation of it is to continue this. And like, that's actually what produces flourishing for this family. That's actually what will get the land back in the possession of the family. It was intended to is if this line continues. And so um, I, I don't know, I think there's a relationality to the law that we often forget because we've grown up in this Western civilization where we've taken relationality out as much as we possibly can. We like to think that it's blind when the law was never blind. It's always been contextualized. And it's always been, you know, affecting people. Um, and so the question shouldn't be like, what's right or wrong? The question is what produces flourishing? And like, let's get on board with, with that interpretation, that idea. What a question. The question shouldn't be about what's right or wrong. The question should be about what moves us towards flourishing. Let's do that. what is the line between flourishing and oppressing and knowing what it is when my flourishing hurts others, how I'm becoming an oppressor and what it is to step into the kind of flourishing that benefits all, um, which is really a part of where Ruth is going is if this doesn't benefit Ruth, then they're not, they're not doing it right. And Ruth is that other. Um, and, and what is it to welcome and include her? 
And so we're skipping over um, verses seven through 10, which is really the formal um, acceptance of, of Boaz in this role of redeemer. And there's this really interesting thing with like throwing a sandal. Um, so that is a rabbit trail that people can go down if you are interested in going down that. Uh, we're going to skip over that part and we are going to look at how the people um, are responsible. Uh, end up responding to Ruth and how they also end up responding to Naomi as this becomes the pathway for their flourishing. And so that is verses 11 through 16. Lisa, you want to give us a read? All right. Uh, continuing in the altar translation. And all the people who were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And do worthy things in Ephrathah and proclaim a name in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, to whom Tamar gave birth by Judah, from the seed that this young woman will give you. And Boaz took Ruth the Moabite, and she became his wife. And he came to her bed with her, and the Lord granted her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not deprived you of a redeemer today, and let his name be proclaimed in Israel. And may he be a restorer of your life for you and a support for your old age, as your daughter-in-law, whom you love, has borne him, who has been better to you than seven sons. And Naomi took the child and placed him in her lap and became a nurse for him. And the neighbor woman called a name for him, saying, A son is born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He was the father of Jesse, father of David. Okay, that was actually through 17, which is probably a better point to pause. All that comes after that in the book of Ruth is a couple genealogy lines. Mm -hmm. uh, so what stuck out to you as you, as Lisa read that? Although they're talking about Ruth, they barely mention her name. And they mention Naomi quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. in verses 11 through 12, which is when people at the gate and the elders are talking to Boaz, they're talking about the woman you are coming into the woman coming into your house. They don't name Ruth by name, which might be interesting to think about. And then in verse 14, the women of the town bless Naomi. Um, and so kind of where is Ruth in this here? Here we have all the people of the town saying something to Boaz about Ruth. And then we have all the women in the town saying something to Naomi. What's happening to Ruth? What? Well, I mean, in lots of ways, it feels like it is. We're like on the, like in that moment of where things could have gone a little bit differently. Like naming Rachel and Leah means that you're not naming the other women that bore children, right? Like there's actually, like we're already missing some names. If we're not paying attention, we're missing names. And yeah. then it feels like that's the potential that Ruth can Ruth could disappear here as well. Mm. Right? Like the communities, the community seeing Naomi pretty clear. All the all the women are supportive there and doing that. But I feel like this like calling out some attention of like there's something, there can be things missing, and we can forget some of the players in the story that have really made a big difference. Mm -hmm. That goes to like this, this question we've asked a few times, I think in this series of like, what were the writers conscious of when they were writing something and, and where is God kind of putting in some things that people might not have been conscious of for us to see and, and wonder about. 
So Bilha and Zilpah aren't named. Bilha and Zilpah were the outsiders who, who were the handmaidens of Rachel and Leah. And they bear the children of a good portion of, of Israel's descendants. How have they been lost from the narrative at this point? And how might Ruth be at risk of being lost from the narrative is one way to wonder about this blessing of the townspeople towards her. I wonder if there's another possibility as well. I mean, there's, I mean, on the positive end, maybe, or I don't know, there's probably a way to see it of like the women see Naomi and all the things that Naomi has struggled for. Like there's, there's a particular way that witnessing all of these things changes your perspective on stuff. And Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe Naomi, I don't know. Are they blessing her or blessing the Lord? (laughs) Well, that's that's a good question of scripture in general and how we understand blessing. How long is this podcast episode? (laughs) Um. So let's separate out, maybe let's separate out 11 and 12 first as a way to sort of clean that up a little, or like to, that might be a conversation we've got to save for that conversation about the women in Naomi. So Rachel and Leah being named is really in the conversation between the, the people at the gate, the elders and Boaz talking about Ruth. Um, and the fact that they say, may the Lord make this woman who is Ruth, even though she's not uh, named there, like Rachel and Leah. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring, which the Lord will give you by this young woman. There's a couple things that are actually maybe surprising about what the people are saying there, even as we also wonder who, about kind of who they've already missed. Um, well, if, they do name Tamar, which feels oh. in a, in. A, with our American lens on it, we're like, oh, Tamar, that's got a whole hard story. Let's not talk about it. Let's not preach about it. It's hard. But here, like, there's not, it doesn't seem to be an issue. <laughs> okay. So one of the things is Tamar, I think, has already come up in this podcast because Judah looks at Tamar and tells, says to her, you are more righteous than I. And Boaz looked at Ruth and said, you are more chesed than I. And Ruth now here is compared to Tamar. Um, that both stories have a little bit of messiness to them, but also these women who are finding the good and godly path and being seen for that, even then throughout history, to, that Tamar comes back up. Yeah, I also think that there's something about, she's always been called Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, 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 Moabite. And here we don't have Ruth the Moabite, who Boaz married. It's it's the woman that you married, let her be like Rachel and Leah who, I mean, they've got to be in like the pantheon, like the, the, the Mount Rushmore of, of women in the history of this people. Right. I mean, so to be called among named among them has to be one of the highest honors and, and and one of the most affirming things as part of the community um, so I don't, I, I mean, I, I, although I drew attention to dropping her name or not using it as frequently, maybe that was a way of saying like, you're no longer simply the outsider. You're one of us now. And which is pretty, pretty empowering to some degree. Yeah, there could be a way to really see them as calling her an insider here of saying like, we are welcoming you and we want 
you to be like our matriarchs that we would put on that hall of faith, you know, that we've got Sarah and we've got Rebecca and we've got Rachel and we've got Leah that we would hold up as matriarchs. We want you to be like Rachel and Leah. We're not calling you a Moabite. We're calling you an Israelite. Well, and if we are sticking with the idea that we have of her being kind of this mover and shaker with like the law and almost reinterpreting it, rewriting it. Similarly, like, I don't think Tamar was rewriting the law, but she was holding the patriarchy to the account of the law. And so there's something about her maybe boldness in how she was understanding the law that really sets her apart uh, among the people. I think in some ways it's really important though to not assimilate Ruth in certain True. ways. Like let Ruth be a Moabite. Mm-hmm. And actually what it's showing us is that <laughs> I mean, oh God, sometimes I feel like I'm saying that okay, I'm gonna say it. Like what if it's what is this is the invitation that's showing us that a Moabite it has a better understanding of Hesed than an Israelite. But that like so much of that has to do with your placement in like society in culture and like how we see people as like, who are the people who are oppressed in the story coming at like Moabites would be the ones that are, have all kinds of feels about it, but that's actually where we see the best understanding of some of these really important things. And so even for us thinking about, why do we just want to learn from people who are like us or who are a part of us instead of learning from people who are so different from us that can actually help us understand things better? And maybe what we can, how we can kind of hold that is to say, if this is the blessing of the people at the gate and the elders, then really this is the male voice mm-hmm. saying, here's how we see you, Ruth. And there's some goodness. I mean, there's some good things that they're saying here, but maybe that, maybe that voice of the male powerful patriarchy is more that assimilating sort of voice. Like, yes, we bless you, but in a way where you also kind of disappear. And maybe then the blessing of the women to Naomi, we see a different voice. Like how, what is different about what the women are saying from what the men are saying? If we, if we think maybe this verse 11 and 12 are, it's mainly the male voice, which is not, I mean, there were, there would have been other people at the gate besides just men, but the elders would have all been men. And it's specifically those elders are highlighted. So we can say, this is probably, this is the voice of power. This is the voice of, of the system that just rewarded Boaz, this, this marriage now giving this blessing. Which there, in that case, what I do want to also, like, one of the things that stuck out to me is I, is that Leah get, wasn't forgotten. Like, I want Bilha and Zilpah to not be forgotten for sure. But also, like, Leah has to wrestle so much in her lifetime about being the less loved sister. And I love how much the scriptures don't separate her from Rachel. It's always Rachel and Leah. Like, however much of a battle that was in her lifetime she's she's right here with her sister jacob gets buried next to her i love i i appreciate that she's not forgotten here and that she's listed alongside the more desired sister so maybe let's do a little side by side and look at what the women say in comparison to that so maybe first the question is just what do we what do we think about the fact that the women are saying 
are speaking to Naomi versus speaking to Ruth? Well, they don't really know Ruth. They know Naomi. I think that's, I mean, it is her community of people that greeted her when she came back and like, and, Right. And what was the conversation when she came back? Remember, remember in chapter one, however many episodes ago this was now, Ruth or Naomi had a conversation with the women of Bethlehem when she returned. What was that conversation in chapter one? Almi Marat, taken God's taken away everything. She had told them to call me Marah. So the, so this is back in chapter one, verse 19 and 20. When they arrive in Bethlehem, the whole City buzzes and the women say, Can this be Naomi? And so to that those women, she replies, No, call me Marah because the Lord has dealt harshly and bitterly with me. Now those same women look at Naomi and say, What? The Lord's not left you. May the Lord's name be renowned in Israel. Or yeah, your your redeemer. Yeah, restorer of life, nourisher in your old age, and your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than the seven sons has borne him. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a positive reception. Um, and in a lot of ways, I feel like we're ending where we began, and this is Naomi's story a lot, in a lot of ways. Um, it, it feels, although the book is named Ruth, and although Ruth is like such a important part of this whole story because of everything she does in a lot of ways we we've been on this from the very get-go with Naomi and it's neat to see the arc of her journey not forgotten here at the end well and to even maybe say there's a way that highlights Ruth still just in a different way to say part of what Ruth was signing on to was to play this role for Naomi's sake Mm-hmm. And a part of why that guy in, in the beginning of chapter four didn't want to be the redeemer is because he didn't want his legacy. He didn't want that to affect his legacy and his inheritance. Both Boaz and Ruth are signing up for the role of redeeming Naomi. And so there's a to expand it. Right. And so to say that, like, even her not being talked about here shows Ruth's character because it shows she's really doing that. She's not trying to insert. She's not doing this for her own sake. She really loves Naomi this much that she's doing this for Naomi's sake. I think it's even bigger. I mean, it's bigger than all these. Like, it is about Ruth and it is about Naomi. But I think it's also about, like, the like is a really... I mean, it's very strange that the women name this child, like that the community has like, that just, I think it's odd. I don't think it happens very often in scripture. What does the name Obed mean? Because they like the, for the community that, yeah, I was thinking the same thing, Lisa, like the community names this child and it said to be born of Naomi. Like it's so unique what they're doing here. Um, so Obed is, um, it, it is means serving. It comes from Eved. So Eved is a word that we've seen a lot in the Torah because it means serve. It means worship. It also means slave. Um, it also means um, work. So um, there's been this question sort of, uh, in the narrative a lot with the word Eved of are we working? Are we worshiping? Are we enslaved? 
are we serving? And how, again, the brilliance of Hebrew tying words together, how, how the answer is often yes. Like whatever we're working for is something we're in service to, sometimes something we're enslaved to, which ultimately means it's what we're worshiping. And so this was the word that was used when the people were enslaved in Egypt, that they were Eved in Egypt. But the language in Egypt is, is let them free from um, Eved Pharaoh and come Eved me. Like the Lord says, like he's not changing the word, he's changing the orientation. Hmm. So now here we have a person who is named by the town as an as a pronoun version. Pronoun the right word? Of that name or of that verb. Work, worship, serve, slave. What do you hear in that? I almost feel like it's a way of saying like he is us. Like he's the encapsulation of all that we are. This is who we've been. This is also who we are. This is who we're going to be. It just depends on, in a way, what we're orientated towards. Are we orientated towards, you know, marginalizing and oppressing? Are we orientating towards, you know, the flourishing of all things and all people? And 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 I think, in a way, it's really honoring of Ruth and Boaz because they are kind of the embodiment of that in the most positive way. Which, I mean, the first time Eved is used is actually in Genesis 2.15. I think that's the first time. It's at least an important time. Um, because humans are placed in the garden to Eved and Shemar it. So they're placed in the garden to work it and to guard it. And so there's this, this core role of humans to work and to guard. And so the way that you just named, like this is this this child is an embodiment of us, is could could be like this this word is an as a word that embodies the role of humanity to work and worship and serve, and this is Obed's name that the community gives him. What do you see in the name, Lisa? You look deep in thought. Um, well, I was thinking that it feels like it kind of ex- expresses the journey of Naomi and Ruth of in lots of ways, like depending on how you're reading it or where you pop in, there's elements of all the, whether it's work or worship or perhaps what feels like slavery or not life-giving. Like their story is super complicated and at different times, all of it probably has felt very real yeah like I just I think it it encompasses some of the hard stuff without like it allows it to be a really like a good name (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it doesn't pretend like the hard stuff wasn't underneath there like it kind of like keeps it all together yeah I mean maybe this is Naomi had to like wrestle with her name because her name meant pleasant and then her life story was so frustrating and hard and so then she was like I need a new name it's gotta be Mara maybe this name is a way to say like is it the kind of name that encompasses lots of parts of the journey that sometimes we're enslaved and sometimes we're worshiping and sometimes we're working and like this is a name that can be a little complicated and honoring while also still being good. Well, that wraps up part 11 of our 12-part series in the book of Ruth. We've got one more part to go. We're excited that it will be dropping next week. 
So please be on the lookout for that. If you have made it this far, I just can't wait for you to finish this out with us. And hopefully you've been able to continue the conversation uh, each and every week and after each and every episode of this. And so we're just so grateful that you've been on this journey with us. We are going to be recording and then dropping some episodes during Lent, uh, more towards Holy Week. So you can be on the lookout for those prior to Easter. And then Steph and Lisa and I will be planning our next season of Searching the Sacred. If you ever have an interest in doing a scripture circle, joining 40 Orchards to study, please go to 40orchards.org and sign up for either a Roots program or sign up to join an open circle. We'd love to have you study with us because it's always better when your voice is a part of the conversation. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Sacred.